can fly there really quickly and we'll get started. We're going to jump right in. If you're new here, what we have been doing is going through the book of Acts. That's the way we roll here at TCC. We like Bible. And so that's what we're going to continue doing today. Marching through the progress of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit in the book of Acts. So if you can find your place in Acts 14, we're going to get started here. When we jump into this story, what we find is our main characters, Paul and Barnabas, at the start of the story, find themselves in the city of Iconium. They're in the middle of Paul's first ever missionary journey here. And the rest of the chapter is going to detail what happened inside of that journey and on that trip. So we're going to slice up this text into three sections. The first one is going to run from verse 1 to verse 7. I'm going to read that with you now in Acts 14. Starting in verse 1, here's what happened on that missionary journey. Now at Iconium... They entered together, that's Paul and Barnabas, into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it. And they fled to Lystra and to Derbe, the city of the Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So here's the setting. It's 47, maybe 48 AD. And you can see here these two apostles. Apostle here means missionary. Literally, apostles are continuing to make a run of sorts. Let's see if we can put a map up. I don't know if we have that or not available. There we go. Bow. They're going to make a boomerang run of sorts to new territory. So at the top... Uh, Right, in the middle right-hand corner, you see Antioch. That's the Antioch of Syria. They're going down red line like a fish hook all the way up to Galatia. That's new territory. The gospel has never been there before. And then the blue line is going to take them back like a boomerang, back around on their journey. And so that's what they're up to here. Iconium was in the middle of the modern-day Turkish province of Konya. So picture yourself in Turkey because that's where they were. And once again, we see Paul and Barnabas heading straight to the synagogue to engage the Jews first. Uh, the text says they were speaking boldly for the Lord. No doubt sharing some Old Testament text and doing some apologetic work as they preached here in the synagogue. So there's two crucial things I want you to note from this text here. The first one is God bears witness to the truth of His own Word by granting Paul and Barnabas signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It's as if physical manifestations, physical healing represents the spiritual healings that comes from the grace of God. People are being healed. And we have many accounts today of where the gospel goes into new territory among unreached people and people will be healed in this phenomenal way. That's what's going on here. Secondly, 
the results of their evangelism were mixed. Now you may have this picture of Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, that everywhere they went, they preached and boom, revival. But it wasn't so according to the gospel. And Acts, this should encourage you, by the way, if you are about the business of evangelism, if you like to share your faith, you should make note of this truth. The good news is that God is going to save some. So keep persevering and speaking of Jesus because God has people out there He's going to bring in. Just like in this instance, some people are going to get saved. And it's also kind of good news when people don't respond to you because you know that's a part of God's plan too, right? Don't get discouraged. Don't think, ah, I'm messing up totally when people do not respond because we see that even in Paul's life too. You're in good company. If you find yourself evangelizing, all the people you want to be saved in your family or even your children aren't responding, that happens to Paul as well. In this case, some Jews persuaded some Greeks to run Paul and Barnabas out of town. They has to plot to stone the missionaries. But at the 11th hour, thankfully, Paul found out and he skedaddled right out of town and escaped. He wasn't stoned here. So he hightailed it from Iconium down to Lystra. And that's where we will go next. So that's the second section of our text today. Runs from verse 8 to verse 20 here in Acts chapter 14. Let's read here in verse 8. Hang in there. This is a longer section of Scripture. If you're not used to reading big Bible passages, it may feel a little bit long, but it's a part of the story, so I want to read it all with us. So we're going to read from 8 down to verse uh, 20. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. The guy sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in their language, Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Right? Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness, says Paul, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And even with these words, the people scarcely restrained from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. But, you'll notice a pattern here. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the same, one, the same city they were in, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So, 
This is the meat of our text today, and we're going to return here after we look at the, the rest of the chapter. But for now, I just want to hit the high points. So here's the high point. The first one, in another city, our team begins once again to engage the locals. And here we read of a healing done by God's power. It's similar to the one Jesus has already done in Luke 5. You might remember that if you read in the Bible. Or Peter's earlier in the book in Acts 3. The Spirit of God comes and people are healed. It's a lame man. God consent, continues to send out a message as if He is saying, if I can dominate sickness by the power of Jesus, then I can dominate sin by the power of Jesus. So you have these sickness healings all the time uh, validating the gospel and the good news that Jesus can conquer evil. He's telling everybody, all things in my kingdom will be made new and whole again through these healings. Secondly, these healings were so phenomenal that people thought Paul and Barnabas were actually gods. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Thirdly, once again we see the Jewish leaders in hot pursuit. There's a new guy playing Saul's former trade of persecuting and pursuing Christians, right? And he's a capable craftsman. He knows how to hunt down Christians and he's done it. Paul is assaulted. He's beat down with rocks. Dragged out city. They beat him so bad they thought he was going to die, so they just dragged him out. That's where they buried the body. So they take him outside of sea and they just left him there. But... There's a word for us. Christ has chosen to glorify Himself in and through, not in spite of, sufferings. God has chosen to glorify Himself through, not in spite of, sufferings. Paul dusts himself off. Perhaps miraculously. Perhaps he just got up really beaten. And the Scripture doesn't tell us. But he returns to the text of preaching the Word of God after an overnight recuperation in Lystra, our boys are off again to another city, 35-mile journey southeast to the town of Derby. So that's the second text we want to summarize, the second section there for you. Finally, the third section of the text here, the last piece of our story happens in verse 21 through 28. At Derby... Another city, something phenomenal happens. They don't get beat up. <laughs> Nobody messes with them in that sense. So this is great news. Remember, this is their first mission trip ever. And uh, here's, the, here's the end of it, right? In the Iconium, they got threatened. In Lystra, they got beat down. They show up to Derby and, hey, no persecution. So that's good. Verse 21. So when they preached the gospel to that city... And they disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they preached and they made disciples in Derby. That's all we hear. Now they're taking the return journey. Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. And what are they doing? Verse 22. The strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24, 
Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they're going now back through all these cities, and went down to Italia. And from there they sailed back home to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had been fulfilled. Remember, this is where they were commissioned from in Antioch. So they've arrived back down at the bottom of the fish hook there. Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time there with the apostles. So they're setting up camp here in Antioch, which is where they started from. So since hit-and-run discipleship is really not Paul's thing, we now hear of them backtracking through these churches that they have already formed. They're visiting them, and look at what they're doing here. It's kind of the nuts and bolts of discipleship. I don't know where you are in your process of building disciples. Some of you are mothers, and you're forming future followers. Some of you are mentors. You're speaking out to people younger than you, community group leaders, wherever you are, and making disciples. Here is a good blueprint. Not all of Acts can be seen as a prescription, but this is a pretty good blueprint of what discipleship should entail, at least parts of it. So let's perk up and see what Paul was doing to make disciples. First, in verse 22, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples. That's because our hearts run easily to evil, don't they? We've already seen in the text that some hearts were poisoned, right, in these very churches. So Paul made it his goal to bolster the hope of other believers. And that's why we have some of the structures we do here at this church. That's why we have community groups or O2 groups. Think for a moment about your calendar this week or your to-do list if you're hyper-organized. Think, think about these things and think about where on there you have placed strengthening the faith of another, bolstering the faith in Jesus Christ of another person. Very high priority for Paul, is seen. Ask yourself, where is that in my life? How, how is that in comparison to my hobby or the education priorities of my kids? Where are you going to fit this idea of bolstering the faith of disciples. Paul was into it. Secondly, Paul offered encouragement to persevere in the faith. And sometimes people just need this, come on, God is for you, don't quit. I'll run with you and Christ. And we'll hang together on His promises. So that's part of what Paul was doing. Saying, don't quit persevere. He was strengthening the souls of his disciples and he was always calling them to never quit, to persevere. The third thing he was doing, the Bible is specific here when it points to Paul's words of hope. In verse 22, we read that Paul taught that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or as Commentator F.F. Bruce has written, No cross, no crown. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus explained this concept on the Mount of Olives, and Paul talked about life as being full of birth pains. There's an analogy many of you can relate to. What's happening now is birth pains in anticipation of the coming of Christ and everything being renewed. Be encouraged if you are struggling. Be encouraged if you have hard times of sickness, even death, pain in your life. It's through these things that we will reach the kingdom of God. 
Christian counselor Ed Welsh gives us some practical suggestions on what to do during these times of hurting, suffering, tribulation. I wanted to share them with you because I found them helpful. So here's some application points for you. What to do when we're suffering. First, Ed Welsh suggests is that we confess our sin. You may not have thought of it like that way. You can confess your sin. That's nothing new. It's a regular feature of daily life, yet it always helps us to see the cross of Jesus more clearly when we confess our own sin. It's the quickest way to see the persistent and the lavish love of God. You confess your sin, you see His greatness, even in the midst of suffering. You see that in Hebrews 12. Also, keep an eye out in Scripture for the suffering servant. Isaiah 39-53 or John 10-21. through Keep an eye out in your Bible reading for the suffering servant because Christ has entered into your suffering and you can enter into His. Also, Speak honestly and often to the Lord. You might think for a believer this is a given, but in suffering we often forget that. Speak honestly and often to the Lord. It's critical. Just speak to Him. Groan. Have someone read you a psalm and just say amen to that. We talked in community group this week about crying out to God in a biblical way, saying, Abba, Father, crying out audibly to Him. You can do this in times of suffering. Also, expect to get to know God a little bit better while in this wilderness. That's hopeful, right? The Christian's track record throughout history, and even in the Bible, is that in the wilderness, in the trial, you actually get to know God in a deeper, sweeter way. So expect this. That's how God works with His people. See that in Philippians 3, 10 and 11. Also, Talk to others who have suffered. Read their books. Listen to them. You're not alone. Insist on being moved with compassion as you hear the stories of other people suffering. Talk to others while you're in your time of hurt. And finally, look ahead. We need a spiritual vision for what's happening now and where the universe is heading. We're on a pilgrimage that ends in the temple of God. So fix your gaze ahead during time of suffering. Read Psalm 84 for some help with that. One other thing from this section, then we'll move on. Look at verse 23. We note here that Paul made his disciples through formal church structure. What do I mean by that? Well, he was going around appointing elders for all of his churches. This is a very early stage. Remember, this is his first missionary trip, and he's going back now and appointing elders in the churches. Why is that? Well, God has ordained for the church to look a certain way. Churches can look different in a lot of ways, but the biblical pattern is having a group of leaders, elders, to teach the Bible, to oversee the church, to pastor the flock. And it's within that context context that Paul seeks to make disciples. That's very instructive to us. And that's why here at TCC we insist on having a group of elders. And this is why we uh, have everybody discuss it and we vote on this. We have a group of elders. Remember that your discipleship is to come through the structures of the local church. 
And finally, after this, because the church is a high priority in God's economy, what do we see Paul doing? At the end of his journey, he comes back to his local church, the one that sent him out in Antioch, and he shares everything that God has been doing. Likewise, as Paul said, we have sent some people out. And the Houstons have now come back from Central Asia from working among an unreached people group. And they are here now and they're going to share sometime this summer about what God has been doing. We've sent other people to China and they are back now. They've been training these elders that we see here. They've been training elders in Chinese churches and they're back now and they're going to share with us what God has been doing. It's very exciting. It helps us to see that we're all in this together and God is moving there and He's moving here and it's a wonderful thing. So here's the big picture. To put today's text in in light of the entire book, Here's what it looks like. The Spirit-empowered, dynamic gospel was launched by Christ in His ministry. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit came down. It came down again for the Gentiles. And now we see it blossoming. right? Just as it was promised to Abraham and Genesis... And you might remember in Malachi, we heard of this son of righteousness that was going to fly and spread his wings. We see the ministry of Jesus through the Spirit now broadening as predicted throughout the rest of the Bible and as predicted in the start of Acts. So with great blossoming, the gospel breaking new ground, going into new territory, different people are hearing about the good news of Jesus. And that's how it fits into our overall story. I want us to move beyond this virgin journey here of Paul and jump back and look at a small section of the text that we already read. So we're going to zero in now on verses 8 to 18 and see what God has for us. You forgot already what we've read in 8 through 18. It's, it's the description of this bizarre, almost hilarious little story of a spontaneous worship service in Lystra. Except they're not worshiping the right God. Remember what had happened. Paul and Barnabas came down to town and they healed a guy. And he, he was healed and he began walking. And all of a sudden the people around him reacted in a way that Paul wasn't wanting to happen, right? They thought that he was a God. So they said, hey, these guys, it's divine people here. They're here among us now and let's go worship them. They had stories in their folklore of actually God's coming down to this uh, particular city. And so it made sense for them. Oh, something crazy happened? This must be a divine person. And so they went about to uh, worship him. Zeus was the god of thunder. Hermes was the messenger god in Greek mythology. And in, in, in their mythology, they both happened to walk through town years ago. So even the village religious expert, which was the priest, he sees this happen. He's like, oh, I know what this is. This is some god stuff, so I'm going to go get the cows and the flowers and we'll just have a sacrifice to them. These men are actually God. That's what was going on in this weird worship service of men instead of the true God. And so what does God have for us in the midst of that bizarre scene? Well, here's the first point that God has for us. We need to know and remember that it is the nature of man to yearn for a God in our own image or of our own design. We see here human nature coming out. 
And that nature is for us to yearn for a God that is in our image or of our own design. Remember Deuteronomy 4? Uh, the story there was uh, in reference to Moses when he saw God in the bush. And God is responding to that. Remember, listen to what God said here. God said, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw Moses, no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of that fire, since you saw no form, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God actually warned His people when you don't understand God, something weird happened in the fire, He was speaking to you, watch out because I know what you'll do. Your nature is to try to remake me in the image of a person or a form. Paul said it later in Romans 1.25, our tendency is to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And so we do well to ask a couple questions here. And we realize that it's our nature to remake God in our image or an image of our own design. Let's ask a couple questions. First, how do we, as people of TCC, modern day followers, how do we remake God in our own image or the image of our desire? Here's the application question. If you can answer this or begin to... That's a real win from the sermon today. Begin that process through how do I personally remake God in my own image. I dare say most of us don't serve wooden idols or we don't mistake our missionaries today for little gods. But we do have a way of remaking God in our image. Here's one way we do it. We do it in a lot of ways. I'm just going to mention a couple ways. Here's one way some of us remake God. We remake God in our image and the way we view God's rule over all of life, including salvation. Think about this. It's a little bit deep, but I know we can handle it. We remake God in our image when we start to ponder our worldview and how God rules over life, including salvation. Here's an interview that I read recently. Again, it's a little complex, but I think we can handle it. Uh, Here's what you get when you read the Bible. When you read the Bible, you have to come to grips with, and it's really hard, it's really challenging, but you have to come to grips with the reality that there is a God who can cause suffering to happen and yet remain completely just. Think about the uh, easiest example is the cross of Christ. Clearly in the Scripture, God planned for that and He made it happen. The crucifixion of the only good and moral pure person ever and yet God remained just in doing so. That's hard to wrestle with, right? How can, how can, God, how can God plan? How can He purpose these things and yet remain good. Well, recently one pastor put out a book. Uh, His name is Austin Fisher. This isn't pastor bashing because I heard an interview with all these things repeated. So it's out there. It's public knowledge. But it's a good example, I think, of how we begin to view God in an anthropomorphic way. So there's a pastor in Texas. His name's Austin Fisher. Wrote a new book called Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed. He's playing off the title of another book. If you've read it, you might think, ha ha, that's funny. But here is in this book how he wrestles with the doctrine of hell, right? Which is punishment. 
for people who are doing evil. Here's how he wrestles with that really hard doctrine. Uh, listen to what he says. He said, when I was thinking through, this is a guy who used to hold to uh, very traditional Christian beliefs and now he's gone off to some other type of Christian belief. So, uh, quasi-Christian I would say. So here's what he said. When I was thinking about hell, it presented me with a God so seemingly cold and morally ambiguous that I despaired of how I could know and I could relate to such a God. Hear that? Hear what he's saying? I, I, I started to see who God was and I couldn't relate to it. I felt like I couldn't know him. Here's, here was his problem and he doesn't state it correctly but here's his perspective. He said, if the God who could die for sinners could also create sinners in order to damn them, talking about hell, then the universe was an incoherent place ruled by an enigmatic deity of arbitrary raw power. It's certainly within God's rights to do such a thing, but if it's within God's heart, then we're all in big trouble. If that's a lot to drink, I'll paraphrase what he was saying. What he was saying was, there's no way a good person could ever do what God did. Remember what God did on the cross. God planned for suffering and even the death of Jesus, right? But He remained just and good. So Austin said, there's no way a person could do that. We wouldn't call a person good if he did that, right? So, therefore, I'm backing away from that view of God. If I can't think of a person, if I can't imagine a person doing this, if I can't come up with an analogy of a person doing that, then I don't want a God who looks like that. You see what he's begun to do? He's begun to view God and remake Him in what? The image of a person. And why did he do it? it the problem of evil is what we call philosophically. And that this sermon is not about answering that. Uh, there is clear biblical evidence, of course, that God is condemning people for their unbelief and their rebellion and giving them over to their sin while maintaining this holiness. But the point I'm making with this illustration is that we do this all of time, all the time. So if you're having trouble, I don't do that. I don't think about it. Think about how you respond in hard areas involving suffering in your life. Or plans that haven't gone your way. Or relationships that have gone sour. Are you tempted in those moments to remake God and not believe that He's ruling over this, right? Instead, remake Him in your own image. Are your expectations of God based on what you would expect from a creature or from the high Creator mentioned in the Bible? It's a good, good thought process to examine this week. Pastor Kevin DeYoung gives good counsel in these trying moments when suffering happens and you can't figure out why would God do this? How can God be good? What's going on here? He defaults to Romans 9.20. Do you know what Paul writes in Romans 9.20? He says, Who are we to talk back to God? Who are we to talk back to God? And I think Paul would go even farther and say, Who are we to re-image God? In our own image. There's things that we're not going to understand, but we are to stay within the biblical picture of who God is. That's where faith comes in. Trusting in the things that you do not understand. That's one way that we tend to remake God in our image. Here's one that's a little more simple. 
how how do we, how do you understand your life's significance? How do you understand your life's significance? Because sometimes when we look at God's purposes and God's mission for us, we can even begin to twist those, sculpt them into our own image or our own purposes. Some of our purposes might be a bigger salary or a nicer house, successful career, safety and education of your kids, respectability and power in the community, finding a spouse finally, right? Mastering new skills. All of these things might be good gifts or tools from the Creator, but they're not necessarily seen as the uttermost biblical priorities. In other words, that's not the thing that Paul was mentioning as he was making discipleship. Why is that? Well, if Christ was a finite man like we are, then He may have set up more temporal goals for us as our ultimate aim as believer, but He's not. Christ is a forever God and He's created us to live forever. So He set up these dreams, these ideals, these highest life priorities, the things that gives us significance, like loving one another. Right? Taking joy and hope in God and the Christ of His return. Making disciples of unreached people. Showing mercy and justice in the community. Giving your all for the brothers and sisters of the church. These are our highest God-centered priority. But when we begin to remake God in our image, we put things of His creation on top of them. Because we would rather have that mission than the mission that God has given us. I only mentioned two ways that we can remake God. Spend some time this week thinking about how you make God in the image of man. It's It's a worthy goal. So that's the first thing I think God, the first question we have here is, how do we remake God? The second question I wanted to ask, in light of this story, in light of these people mistaking humans for God, why do we remake God? Beneath the howls always lurk the whys, right? So here's just a couple of reasons that spring directly from the text and why we do this. First, directly from verse 15 where Paul responds to the crowd's action of belittling God by worshiping people. Look what he said. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from what? These vain things, right? One reason why we remake God in our image is it stokes our vanity. It stokes our own vanity. It is our vanity that imagines God has to in some way mirror our thoughts, right? He's responsible to mirror our actions, our abilities, and our desires. Conversely, it takes spirit-born humility to say to God, the way you have revealed yourself to be in the Bible is different than me. I can't understand you. You're vastly beyond who I think you might have been. I can't even figure you out. Theologian Herman Bavink states it like this. God invites us to rest in Him who lives in unapproachable light, whose judgments are unsearchable and whose paths are beyond tracing out. That belief in an immortal, otherly God demands our humility. I agree with Mike Rees when he said... Thank God that His grasp of me is not dependent on my grasp of Him. 
right? You can relate to that. So it stokes our vanity. That's one reason why we do it. Secondly, why do we do it? It's comforting to be in control, isn't it? It's really comforting to be in control. Again, look at the reaction of the head religious guru when he sees this crazy thing that doesn't match his normal reality of people healing a guy who'd never walked before. His first thought is, okay, how can I deal with this? Okay, it's God's. So how can I do? Oh, I know what to do. Let's get a cow and some flowers and I'll pacify them, right? If I pacify them, now I have some control here. If I pacify them, they have to do what they say they're going to do. His desire is to control the situation. If your God is a statue, you can hide from it, right? If your God is money, you can earn it. If your God is approval of others, you can manipulate them so they'll actually like you. It feels good to be in control. The little gods who look a lot like us are much easier to control. Job's Almighty. Remember what Job said? His chapter 37. He said, By God's breath, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture, and clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for His land or for love, God causes all this to happen. That's a God that since we can't control, we must obey, follow, and submit to. It's the first thing that God would have us see is that the nature of man to remake God in His image. Second big point I want to make. It's the mission of God to declare His satisfying distinctiveness. If it's our nature to remake God in our own image, know that it is the mission of God to absolutely declare His satisfying distinctiveness from us. So into this morass of false worship, Paul interjects here what he calls the good news. And look at me in verse 15. It's stranger than what you think it would be, I think. He said, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. We bring you gospel. What do you think he's going to say next? You think he might drop some Jesus here, right? A Jesus bomb. You guys heard of the term Jesus juke? Jesus juke is when you take an ordinary conversation and out of context you just throw Jesus into it to wow people. Like, so a bunch of guys are sitting around talking. Guys do this. And they're saying, who was the fastest athlete ever? You're saying, Bo, was it Carl Lewis? Was it Bo Jackson? And somebody says, it was Jesus because he walked on water. You know, it's, it's a Jesus juke where you throw Jesus in there and it doesn't really match the context at all. Paul doesn't do this. You might expect him to throw it in there, but he doesn't do it. Listen to what he does say. He said, you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
We'll see that matches with Jesus, but it's not explicitly talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Why is he so generic in his evangelism here? What's up with Paul? The liberal? No. See, he realizes that if he's going to reach these people, he's going to have to interact with their presuppositions. They have assumptions about reality, and he goes there first. In order for the story to make sense, Paul must engage his hearers' assumptions about how the world works. The ideas upon which all other ideas stand. That's what he's going for. Uh, For instance, the Greeks obviously held to the assumption that there's more than one God because they saw Paul and Barnabas as being two different gods, right? So he zeroes in on a living God, one living God. Daryl Bach says that one cannot even discuss Jesus without first establishing there's only one God. And that's what he's doing. If we continue reading in the text, we see this, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own way, says Paul. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seeds, satisfying your heart with food and gladness by allowing the Gentiles to walk in their own ways. Paul simply means that never before have you been given this specific revelation I'm going to give you. God chose Israel for that, and now He's spreading it to you. This is new. If you're familiar with the Bible, Romans 1.20, we'll see that God did give people enough. He gave them a revelation of His eternal power and divine nature. Similar idea to what he's talking about here in Acts 14. But he adds a caveat here. Paul credits God with satisfying the hearts of people by providing for all of their daily needs. So here's how Paul presents God to them. He says, God is living. God is creator. God satisfies you. Remember what he's doing. He's declaring his satisfying distinctiveness. And now what I'm going to present to you and show you is how Jesus best declares God's distinctiveness. Jesus best declares God's distinctiveness. Even though Paul doesn't go directly towards this in the text, throughout the rest of the Bible, it's revealed to us, and Paul certainly had this as his content. So here's three ways that our Savior Jesus best declared the distinctiveness of God. First is that Jesus Christ is living. Jesus Christ is living. The clear fact of Easter is that Jesus from Nazareth was tortured and died on the cross and then He raised again. He was raised again on the third day. Why does this matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons. Here's some of them. First, when Jesus rose from the dead, He removes death's claws. He removes death's claws. It's like a cat who has been declawed, is so helpless now that he can't get out of the house and can't go in the street anymore. That's what Jesus has done to death by removing its claws, which is fear. The Bible says clearly that Jesus has removed the greatest weapon. Jesus Himself said in Revelation 1.18, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and to Hades. If he lives, then death is conquered and we no longer fear it. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.15, Christ can deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's good news. As the song we sing says, No fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. 
Because He commands our destiny, we don't have to fear death. And that's good, good news that Christ is living. What else? Why is it important that Christ is living? Because He constantly is rooting for you. Christ is constantly rooting for you. Not too long ago, I talked to a single mom here in the community. And I happened to be at the ballpark when her son was playing at the ballpark. And we were talking about it because she wasn't able to be there. And she was very excited. But it was uh, interesting to me what made her the most excited. It wasn't that this guy did really well in sports, which he did. It wasn't that the team won which they did, it was that she had heard that while her child was performing, people on the other team were even encouraging him and rooting for him and saying, hey, nice play. Why was that important? Because we all want people to root for us. And Jesus does even more than root for us. He intercedes for us because He is living. Remember Hebrews 7, 24. Compared to other priests, God says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing. Right? The other priests failed. There had to be a lot of them because they kept dying off. But Jesus holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, says the author, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always what lives to make intercession for them. Christ is the living distinctiveness of God. Secondly, the Son of God created all things. Remember, Paul brings that up, the God of creation. We see in the Scripture, the Son of God actually creates all things. Remember Colossians 1.16. Paul states, But by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. What does that mean? Created by Him or through Him. Well, there's an implication here. One implication is, since He created all things, He has created freedom to rule over everything. Jesus has the freedom to rule over everything. That means He can conquer sex trafficking and bring justice. He can turn blindness into sight. He can turn paralysis into dance. Racism into harmony. Jesus can do it. Because He created it. And He rules over it. It's called creative freedom. And only Christ of God has this. What does it mean that things were created for Him? This is encouraging. It means you were made for His pleasure. Sink your teeth into that one. You were created and born for His pleasure. This is good news. For if the One who created you created you to please Himself, He certainly has the power to pull that off. One of the most discouraging things in my life today is the fact that even yesterday I committed a sin that I committed the day before and the day before and the day before. Whether it's anger or greed or lust, you name it. Some of us struggle, all of us struggle with reoccurring sins to the point where we might think... God can't rescue me. How's He going to change this? 
But trust in the promise, dear Christian, that you were created for His pleasure. And if He created you for that intention and purpose, He's going to bring it about. That's very hopeful for me. Very hopeful for me when I wallow in my self-pity and self-condemnation. Remember, you were created for Him and by Him. Furthermore, the Creator will not change. Part of creating all things means that He's not a part of creation, right? All creation will change. But the Creator, which is the Son of God, will not change. Hebrews 1.10 says this, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of Your hand. They will perish, but You remain. Listen to this. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. The picture is a sovereign king who wears a long robe. And what he's actually doing is folding that robe up and putting it on the shelf. Why? Because he realizes that it's growing old. It's got some dysfunction now. He's worn it out. And so he's folding it up and he's putting it up. That's what Jesus will do with creation. He realized that creation is running out of steam. It's going bad, unlike him. So he go roll it up, put it on the shelf, and remake it one day. Because it has faults. But not... Jesus. Jesus doesn't have this. In contrast, Jesus, our Creator King, will never fade or rip or tear or stain. His love will not change. His goodness will not cease. His presence will never alter. Listen, it's no good to bet on a thoroughbred who practices well if on race day he's a mule, right? Las Vegas isn't going to pay for those of you in the tournament who picked Wichita State because in the regular season they lost zero games. They get to the tournament, things change. They falter. Jesus Christ does not change. He remains the same. Your idols of your heart, comfort and greed and power, they are fickle illusions. But Jesus Christ is our rock. It's important that the Son of God created all things. Finally, Jesus alone satisfies our yearnings. Paul talked about how God in some sense has satisfied you through the mundane things of life, through food, what have you. Now look to Jesus to find the ultimate satisfaction. Jesus Himself compared His satisfaction from the feeling you get when you eat a good meal. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. He gives here and issues the invitation as He describes the compensation. Right? The invitation is come and believe in Me. The payoff, the compensation, you will never hunger. You will never thirst. I will never let you down. Because I alone can satisfy your yearnings. How does He do that? He takes away our guilt. When He died on the cross for all of us who will believe, He said to God, this person is not guilty. And so we don't have to carry it around. All the yearnings we have to be innocent, to be perfect, we can ditch Him because Jesus was all of these things. And He stands out and He calls to us today, I am the bread of life. Come to Me if you're here needing satisfaction. Come to Me if your soul is dark. Run to Me. Run to Me and only I can satisfy you. We sang earlier the wonderful song, 
written by a lady in 1875. Modified it a little bit, but it's a hymn written by Clara Williams. I'm going to end by reading these words. Sometimes it's helpful to read the words of a hymn without all of the good musical representation. Claire Williams wrote, I was feeding on the husk around me till my strength was almost gone. Long my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and I sought for riches, something that was satisfied, but the dust I gathered around me only mocked my soul's sad cry. O well of water, ever springing, beautiful bread of life, so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth my Redeemer is to me. Jesus satisfies my longing through His life. I now am saved. So thankful for the Jesus who satisfies. Let's pray together. Oh God, in Christ You do satisfy us. Only Jesus is the true living God. Only Jesus in cooperation with the Father and the Spirit, has created all things and so He's above it. And only Jesus can satisfy us. And God, now as we come to Your table, help us to be satisfied, not just in bread and juice, but in the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ and all that it accomplished to us and in Christ Himself. Push us back to Jesus and let us sup of Him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to take this table together.